Yoga in Action proudly presents The Lost Ways of Knowing with Circle Yoga Shala's Matthew Kreps. Welcome everyone. Let's give a quick summary of the last episode so that new listeners might position themselves a little better to where we are in the development of these ideas. We talked last time about the Buddha and about the revolutionary nature of his teaching, about the fact that he denied the reality of the self or the soul, the reality of anything that persisted as constant throughout change that came to be known as something that was conceived of as having a separate self sense. And instead of so instead of focusing on this self and its nature, supposed nature, as the focus of the philosophy or the practice, the Buddha assumed instead an ethical stance with regard to an impermanent world, overwhelmingly characterized by suffering. This is a powerful force in Buddhism, this ethical stance in relation to the suffering of the world. But the central teaching could probably call the middle way the Madhya Marga, that's the way between world affirmation and world denial. The specifics of that way really are the four noble truths, the sort of statement about what's going on, all of life is suffering, desire is the cause of suffering, desires can be relinquished, there is a path leading away from the suffering and those desires. The specifics of the path that lead away are called the Noble Eightfold Path. I think we find the Buddha's teaching in just about everything that follows him in some way, uh, either as an re- outright rejection of or <laughs> incorporation of right, influences or ideas that emerge directly from his, his middle way. Remember the Buddha's last words are said to be, Quote, Listen, O monks, I admonish you by saying, All composite things are subject to birth and decay. Work out your salvation with diligence. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Sankhya. Maybe the most influential philosophy in, in philosophical history in, in India. I think that's safe to say. It's a big statement, but I think it's safe to say. The elements of Sankhya have probably been around since the late, middle or late Vedic period. We see things, for instance, as we talked about the Brahmanas, we talked about their tendency to to organize things in groups of five. This is very important in the Sankhya philosophy. So that stuff has been around a long time. It isn't until the 3rd century CE that you see the first systematic presentation of Sankhya as a philosophy. This presentation is in something called the Sankhya Karika, and it's written by Ishvara Krishna. In this episode... We're looking at the relationship between Sankhya and Yoga 
as it's expressed in the Mahabharata, the Gita, and the Yoga Sutra. Since those texts are so important for modern practice, and since all of them seem to be influenced in some sense by Sankhya, we need to spend just a little bit of time looking at its specifics. We're very grateful for the scholars who have made this these massive subjects into something that we could speak about in a 30-minute session of talking. Dr. Wendy Doniger gives this summary of Sankhya. Sankhya as a philosophy has roots that date from the time of the Upanishads and are important in the Mahabharata, especially in the Gita, but were first formally codified by Ishvara Krishna in the 3rd century CE. Sankhya is dualistic, dividing the universe into a male, Purusha, and a female, Prakriti. There are an infinite number of similar but separate Purushas, no one superior than the other. Early Sankhya philosophers believed that God may or may not exist but is not needed in order to explain the universe. Later Sankhya philosophers assume that God does exist. Now, there's a lot in here, as usual. Let me point out three quick things that are important to remember to help give a good context for the broad territory that this philosophy eventually commands in terms of influence. First of all, it's dualistic. It's, it's one of those basic flavors. That means there's two things that compose what we would call or the real. Second, there are an infinite number of similar but separate purushas. That word purusha is translated as spirit, self, or person. And so right off the bat, another category in this dualism is a set of eternal, infinite number of selves that already exist. Now, they're separate from one another, but they're similar. And third, there have been theistic and atheistic orientations toward what we're calling Sankhya philosophy. So let's get into some of the details. Sankhya usually is translated as counting or enumerating. Well, according to Edwin Bryant, Sankhya should be understood as, quote, dealing with calculation in the sense of reasoning, speculation, philosophy. In other words, the path striving to understand the ultimate truths of reality through knowledge, typically known as jnana yoga. So we are counting or enumerating in the sense that we're using reasoning and speculation and philosophy, and all of that is aimed at understanding the ultimate truths of existence, but we're going to understand those through knowledge. The essence of the philosophy could be called substance dualism. We have two distinct categories here that are both eternal. There is Purusha, the self, and remember there's an infinite number of those. And what is that Purusha? Here's what Bryant says, the innermost conscious self, broadly synonymous with the notion of soul. So 
This is deep, the innermost conscious self. You can let those words bring a sense in you of what they might refer to, what they call to mind and feeling. In addition to Purusha, there is an eternal Prakriti. Bryant says that Prakriti should be conceived of as, quote, the material world with all its variegatedness within which the Purusha is embedded. So we see what the two categories are. One is infinite number of selves or persons that are eternal and a material world that is also eternal, that is variegated. That means it has massive amounts of quality and difference. It also, in this case, means that it moves in a sense. It has rhythm. It pulsates to a rhythm called guna, a three-note rhythm. And the self, each individual self, the ones that are not free, let's say that, the ones that are experiencing reincarnation or that experience, those are embedded, quote, unquote, in nature. So the soul or the person needs to be freed from its ensnarement within, and I want to add another sense, or and or its association with nature via discernment or viveka, what we'll call true gnosis also. So we have to discern between, we have to discern the differences between the soul and nature in order to have right knowledge. And then we have to renounce all that is not the soul, all that is not the person. What about Sankhya in the Mahabharata? What about yoga in the Mahabharata? Because remember, we're here to kind of talk about how the ideas of Sankhya and yoga are related, and we're going to try to get a sense of that through the Mahabharata, the Gita, and the Yoga Sutra. So Edwin Bryant says that the word yoga is used 884 times in the Mahabharata. And in each of those times... It carries the sense of, quote, disciplined activity and earnest striving. By contrast, the word Sankhya is referred to about 120 times in the Mahabharata. Bryant says that it carries the sense of, quote, reasoning. So yoga is mentioned many more times, 884 in comparison to 120. And it means disciplined activity and earnest striving. Those as descriptions, at least, seem to me to denote something about action, taking action in a way. Sankhya is reasoning. Now, that's an action in itself. It's something that happens. but And it, it may be involved in disciplined activity and earnest striving, but it has a, uh, a more internal, quote-unquote, aspect to it. One can reason, in a sense, without taking action in the world, bodily action. So, 
Bryant says this about the relationship between the two. Sankhya focuses on, quote, analysis of the manifold ingredients of Prakriti from which the Purusha is to be extracted, and yoga more with the path of meditation, focusing on the nature of mind and consciousness and on the techniques of concentration in order to provide a practical method. So if there's a distinction to be made between Sankhya and yoga and how they feel different and give different emphasis Part of it is that yoga wants to ha- have a practical method. So there's a, there's a sort of inference there that Sankhya might be impractical for a vast majority of people. The Notice that Sankhya is, is doing analysis of the manifold ingredients of Prakriti. It's a little bit like science in a certain way. What is Prakriti made of? What are its qualities? What's the rhythm, right? Uh, what about... It's does it have self-awareness or does it not? It's where does that come from? So it's kind of asking these questions and speculating and reasoning and then formulating philosophical truths in a way, as at least as Bryant sees it. And yoga is is interested in the nature of mind and consciousness for sure. But the the techniques overwhelmingly push one toward concentrating and concentrating in a space of stillness, which feels effortful, feels like taking action, in a sense. I think it's safe to say that Sankhya and Yoga share the same goal of liberating the soul from its ensnarement, but they differ in their emphasis and means, right, as they move toward this common end. What about Sankhya and the Gita? This idea that Sankhya and Yoga are different means to the same end, which would be liberating the soul from somehow. The Gita really uses that idea, takes it and run with it in a a sense. Here's what uh, chapter 3, Sloka 3 says. Quote, A twofold division was established by me, that's Krishna, of old, Jnana Yoga, the Yoga of Knowledge, followed by Sankhya, and Karma Yoga, the yoga of action, followed by the yogis. So this twofold division is old, and it's established by the Creator. This twofold division is characterized as yana, knowledge, that's a yoga, and the followers of Sankhya do that kind of yoga. And then there's Karma Yoga, the yoga of action, is followed by the yogis. Here's what it says in chapter 5, Shloka 2. The renunciation of works, and that's referring to Sankhya, and their unselfish performance both lead to the soul's salvation. But of the two, the unselfish performance of works is better than their renunciation. So Sankhya's had several valences as we've gone from the Mahabharata to the Gita, here's another one. We know it's the yoga of knowledge. We know it involves speculation. We know it involves reasoning. We know it involves being philosophical. But here in the Gita, it's associated with, quote, the renunciation of works, a kind of objectivity or a kind of pulling back from action in the world in order to contemplate more so, meditate more so, 
or reason, I suppose. The Gita also here is saying both of these lead to the soul's salvation, but hey, the unselfish performance of works, that's the way of the yogis in an unselfish posture, is better. Here's what uh, chapter 5, shlokas 4 and 5 say, quote, The ignorant speak of renunciation, which is sankhya, and practice of works, which is yoga, as different, not the unwise. He who applies himself well to one gets the fruit of both. The status which is attained by the men of renunciation is reached by men of action also. He who sees that the ways of renunciation and of action are one, he sees truly. So, a strong statement about the relationship between renunciation through reasoning and being philosophical and through the unselfish performance of works, being engaged in the world and serving the things in the world, karma yoga, the newness that comes out of this is that, let me read it again, he who applies himself well to one gets the fruit of both. I think that's an amazing statement because it, it means that we could pick one, in a sense, based on our proclivities or our, say, for instance, our lack of certain characteristics. You know, if people who are, there are those who are more, quote-unquote, intellectual and those who are more, quote-unquote, intuitive or related to feeling, there is some sense in making those statements. But that doesn't mean that development or the expansion that happens to someone when they begin to be serious about yoga that doesn't mean that that expansion naturally happens just by doing your proclivities, picking things that are, you know, that you're inclined to do. It also means expanding and moving into areas that are different. And so those who are, quote unquote, more intellectual and who would prefer to be still and quiet and so on might gain something by moving into the world and serving others and and acting for the maintenance and the welfare of the world is what the Gita, Gita would say. Conversely, those who are, uh, say, for instance, more person-oriented and for whom serving and working is a great joy, they might also find space, new space, right, in some kind of activity that it does look like reasoning or does look like uh, inference and knowledge in some sense. And I'm talking about degrees. You know, I'm not, I think those, those differences in us are very real. And, but I also think that the transformation that yoga beckons shows us that how we relate to these ideas, right, can be really, really varied and sophisticated. We might not just want to stick with our preferences when it comes to the transformation or the levels of transformation that we're talking about here. And we might not want to just ignore our preferences when it comes to talking about the kind of transformation that we're involved in here. Now, what about Sankhya and classical yoga? 
when I first started learning about the Yoga Sutra, I just immediately learned it was stated baldly by many, many, many people that Sankhya is the system that Patanjali is built on. I, I think I see many robust connections. First of all, the sutra, sutra system is built on the, the relationship slash non-relationship of Purusha, the self, or the soul, and Prakriti. And it also says, it also assumes that the soul needs to be disembedded in a way because it says the problem that, that results from this, con, this relationship is that there is a relationship. There's Sam Yoga. And that means, S-A-M means the same, and Yoga, in a sense, means conjoined. So you see Sam Yoga translated as conjunction, uh, close proximity sometimes, something like that. And so there's a problem with these two being conjoined. Hence the idea that somehow unconjoined or separated, dare I say, is actually what the Yoga Sutra is about. But the Yoga Sutra, even though all those things are true about its relationship with Sankhya, it, it has a subtle nuance that it brings to the, the table. And that is, the Yoga Sutra places a lot more stress than Sankhya, strictly speaking, on ecstatic experience or samadhi. Here's what Georg Feuerstein says. Rational knowledge alone, and that's a reference to Sankhya, is not deemed sufficient for exposing the false identity that is the ego sense. So the, so the sutra is definitely interested in the true identity of the soul, the true nature of the soul. And in its quote-unquote non-conjunction, its disjunction, it's V-yoga, it's separation from what is false. But it, it assumes that being absorbed in samadhi is, is a more necessary component, actually, than the way of knowledge. So true gnosis, true vidya, or true knowledge, flows from ecstatic re revelation in the sutra. That's the only kind of thing that is strong enough to uncover the roots of our habitual misidentifications. The sutra is an example, again, of this, this perennial idea that it's possible for us to be identified with, with or as something we're not, and for our action then to flow from that, and then for our action to actually create, quote-unquote, a character, an impression, karakso, and then a repetition, and then endless rebirth, and so on. Still in that place, right, in the Yoga Sutra. I think the last thing we could say about the relation between the Sankhya and the Yoga Sutra is another subtle distinction. For most in the history, the, the Yoga Sutra has probably been seen as a theistic text. That's according to Edwin Bryant. And he tries to make the case that it was likely Vaishnavite, meaning Vishnu, meaning the, the kind of quote-unquote flavor of, of Indian society that is about 
Vishnu, about preservation. It's, it's sometimes said to be the more conservative side and that the Shaivite side, the Shiva side, is the less conservative side, the more renegade side because, of, because you can see those two tendencies about Shiva kind of being the outcast as he develops throughout history from the late Veda, especially onward, and, and how Vishnu is, is the sort of the end person the end flavor. But not everybody has considered Sankhya or the Yoga Sutra, right, a theistic text. Some have assumed that the Ishvara that is spoken of in the Yoga Sutra, which is a really old word for something like God, is more like an archetypal idea and not really like a personal God. And Sankhya itself is basically considered to be atheist in orientation, although some, I think Wendy Doniger said earlier on in our summary, the, the later Sankhyans probably caved in to the generally theistic attitude of the culture. Let's give a summary. So when we're speaking of Sankhya, we're speaking possibly of the most influential philosophical system in Indian history. It's adopted outright by many. It's rebelled against by many. It's used as the basis for larger systems that incorporate it, but add to its structure so that its strict dualism is altered or overcome. Tantra in particular does that. In the Gita... Sankhya is considered to be a yoga in a legitimate way. It has the sense of renunciation of works, of that ascetic, a uh, little bit of an ascetic flavor. And also, basically it is synonymous with yana, yoga, or the yoga of knowledge. Sankhya is considered to be the basis of the Yoga Sutra, which seeks the same end as the philosophy itself, that is the abstraction of pure spirit, or purusha, from its, quote, conjunction with prakriti or nature. But the sutra emphasizes that that project, right, of disembedding the self or the soul is going to be more successful if samadhi is the basis of the endeavor. And so that means the sutra places more emphasis on ecstatic absorption in addition to this yana aspect. But because we've been talking about Sankhya, because it has that, that real systematic, rational presentation, it, there are not a lot of images to leave you with, uh, like we like to do in these episodes, by telling a story or something like that. But I have something here from the Sankhya Karika of Ishvara Krishna. This is from Adya 3. Quote, primordial nature is uncreated and yet creates. Awareness is neither. So, primordial nature is prakriti and awareness here is purusha. When we think of Sankhya and therefore when we think of the Yoga Sutra and when we think of the Gita, when we think of the Mahabharata, this idea is woven through them all and has subtly distinct flavors. The universe wasn't created 
by an external force according to the Sankhya. It has always been here. It's eternal. Remember, it has two parts. Here we have awareness and primordial nature. They have two distinct and different characteristics. Primordial nature is eternal, but creates. That means changes, pulses in a rhythm, and so on. Primordial nature does not have awareness in the strictest sense. Awareness itself, or purusha, is neither created nor uncreated, neither does it create nor not create. The neither covers both. It is eternal, and this gives it a passive sense. And so you can see the Sankhyan dualism as this self that doesn't really do anything, but is awareness, is like the light right, of awareness. And this eternal nature, just very close by, that is constantly moving and roiling and creating, that is eternal and won't go and doesn't go anywhere. It's just the changing, changing, and it doesn't have an awareness of itself. The conjunction of the two right, is the problem. The distinction between the two is the way. We really thank you for listening. We appreciate any participation, you know, of any kind. God bless you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. To support our podcast, find Circle Yoga Shala's Patreon page and receive early access, study guides, live sessions with your podcast host, Matt, retreat discounts, and more. Circle Yoga Shala is a school for yoga, creative movement, and self-inquiry in Arkansas's Ozark Mountains. Offerings range from beginner yoga teacher training to an internationally accredited yoga therapy program, as well as Ayurvedic cooking courses for individuals and professionals like chefs, nutritionists, and life coaches. Additional retreats include equine inquiry, CEUs, yoga and recovery, and so much more. Subscribe to our quarterly publication, Yoga in Action, a comprehensive body of literature. To know more about our in-person offerings, visit circleyogashala.com.